Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from the present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's bow hearts and heads in sound of preparation for worship. God of mercy and light above, we come before you, Lord, humbled, thankful, thankful for the many things you've given us, Lord, through our lives and through this week, thankful for this day of worship, thankful, Lord, for one another, thankful, God, especially and above all, for Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We pray, God, for our work this week, God, and our various callings and vocations in life, Lord, as husbands and wives, as mothers and fathers, as children, Lord, as workers and bosses, as citizens of this nation and members of neighborhoods, Lord, as members of clubs and other things, God, that we would do our duty before you, Lord. We would not be discouraged, but rather, Lord, be encouraged by this, your day, that you are with us, and that, Lord, you have equipped us through your providence and through your word to be able to do our callings and vocations in life, to do it well as unto Lord God, whether at home, at school, at work, and anywhere else we may be, God, to take care of the things you've given us, God, and take care of one another. Lord, we pray that we would persevere and we would be encouraging to one another in our callings in life, Lord, uh, not to follow the ways of the world, which often we see, especially uh, through our society here in America, God, discontent, the malcontent they have for their calling and vocation in life, that we have a calling as a man and as a woman, and we have various callings, Lord, as husbands and wives, as adults and as children, Lord, from various abilities that you've given us, God, and responsibilities that go along with those, Lord, for one another, for those around us. So, Lord, may we rejoice in our callings and our works, Lord, rejoice that you have restored us in the image of Christ and are continuing to restore us, and that includes, Lord, our callings to have dominion over the earth, Lord. That's our work and our job throughout the week. We pray, God, for our church, that we would grow both numerically and spiritually, and not only our church, Lord, for our presbytery, our sister churches across Colorado, Dakotas, Wyoming, and Utah, and for our denomination, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, Lord, across this nation and in various places uh, elsewhere as well, Lord, and indeed all the churches that name the name of Christ Jesus, churches we don't know, Lord, but in good faith, uh, that is in charity to your word. Uh, we pray the best for them, God, and ask for their growth, and especially, Lord, for spiritual growth. And in this day and age, God, and in the churches of America, God, where there's lots of confusions, Lord, we pray for their purity and our continued purity in doctrine and in practice. Our God and Savior, we ask that you would uh, be with our families, our couples and our singles, Lord, our churches, economically, that we would maintain through your providence, Lord, that you would maintain such a good economy, Lord, that they would not be messed up and, and destroyed by politicians or big businesses and the like, God. We think in particular of the poor and the middle class, which are being uh, eviscerated over the last several decades, God. And so we pray, God, that the laws and the leaders and the big businesses and the like would take the fifth commandment seriously, uh, that they have a calling, Lord, to do what they can to help their workers uh, to survive and not make things worse, not be so greedy, Lord, uh, that they just tell them they're on their own. And so, God, uh, we pray that uh, these things would be undermined, that is, the worst attitudes and laws and actions of those with influence in our economy, God, and our society, and that the best of them would bring forth, Lord, and that you would maintain such things again for your church, God, uh, for we know that through your providence, churches need money. <laughs> they need support in that way, Lord, and families need work. So, God, again, we pray for a strong economy, certainly for our neighbors, because we love them as patriots, but especially, Lord, for your church. Be with us this evening, we pray, God, be with 
the preaching of your word, and be, Lord, with us as we pray before you, as we sing praises before you, God above, that you would draw us nigh unto you, that you would continue to sanctify us, Lord, and that we would continue to desire purity of heart and purity of action, Lord, and that we would not be discouraged, but rather encouraged to know that you are with us. In the name alone we pray. Amen. We are in First Peter chapter 2, continuing through the book of Peter. When I finish the basic series in the morning, I'll switch to Peter in the morning and go back to the Old Testament. First Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. First Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Behold, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Let us pray. With these words, Lord God above, may we be encouraged and exhorted as Peter was encouraging and exhorting the Christians uh, across uh, the Mediterranean and in Turkey, Lord, to stand firm, to be pilgrims of honor, to act honorably, that is, with respect to your law, God, to be obedient and to be upright uh, outwardly, that is, Lord, publicly in our hearts, God, that so obvious that even though those around us, unbelievers, lie about us and claim that we are evildoers, they may by our good works, through your grace, that they observe, glorify you in the day of visitation. In your name alone we pray. Amen. So we have here the new theme of Peter. In the midst of persecution, in the midst of being outnumbered, in the midst of being in a pagan culture of Rome, empire of old, that they are called to be upstanding citizens, to be upright, to stand firm, and not give in to the lies and temptations uh, to give in when one is persecuted and mocked and laughed at. And he mentions that here. This is the opening statement before he gets into submitting to the ordinances of every man and doing what is commendable before the Lord and submitting to your masters and the like. Callings, the vocations, that language we use from our history as church, the Reformed Church, Protestant churches, that is what we are called to do. God has put us in providence where we have the ability and responsibility uh, to obedient to God and to take care of one another. Peter here is going into this context here, <clears throat> that approach. He's Borrowing down here, explaining the importance, obedience, importance of being a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, as we saw in the prior verse, in contrast to uh, those who stumble at the rock of offense, that being Jesus Christ, those who are indifferent and even hostile to the truth of God's word, we ought to stand out against them. And I will tell you right now, these verses should be encouraging to you. Why? Because Peter, moved by the Holy Spirit, is saying, you can do this. It is not impossible for the Christian. Easy, I suppose, to read text. I was certainly raised this way and see a imperative or command from the Word of God and read it and throw up your hands as I give up. I can't do this. I'm going to keep sinning. That's not what the doctrine of sin is in the Word of God because it is being overcome in the doctrine of sanctification. <laughs> Mixed metaphors there. We are growing, as we saw this morning, being renewed in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4 in the image of Jesus Christ, the image of God through Jesus Christ. In fact, better than Adam. And that begins now. And so these exhortations, as I go through here, should be read in the context of grace, read in the context of encouragement, that God is urging us to keep on keeping on and not to give up. So the first point here, pilgrims abstaining from lusts, verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts. So this translation I have is, I beg you, I would beg to differ. A joke. You can use the KJV, which is beseech, older word. So, 
It can be translated earnestly, ask for, implore, beseech, even beg. So it's stronger than asking, but no, I don't think he's being desperate here in the way the word beg sounds. You hear that in English, you're like, beg? Why is he begging these people? What's Peter on his knees, please? That's not what he's getting at here. It's more like beseeching, strong urging uh, to his audience. Perhaps also suggests uh, some concern by Peter. And of course, he's going to be concerned in a godly way that they stand firm because they are pilgrims in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. They're surrounded by raw paganism. As you recall, where they have the polytheism, believing in multiple gods, and having uh, this whole system and approach to society that is anathema and contrary to Christianity. He has to strengthen them to stand firm against such a culture and a world as, in fact, we find ourselves in more and more, right? So, this suggests there's probably problems among the Christians in his audience, that some of them are forgetting this important fact, that they are sojourners and pilgrims, that they are to abstain from fleshly lusts. Why else would he encourage them to do that, unless he had heard that some of them weren't doing that? So he's warning them, a friendly warning and reminder. It's not as strong as a rebuke, obviously, because he could actually just say, you know, stop it. We've seen all use strong language like that. This isn't as strong. Uh, So he's there encouraging them that way. Stand firm. Not that his audience would willfully seek out fleshly lusts, but what you do, what happens in this case in our lives, is that we get tricked, we deceive ourselves, we make excuses or whatever. It's never, I believe, for the uh, Christian, I hate God, I'm just going to do this. That's what an unbeliever thinks. I hate God, I'm just going to do this. But rather, for whatever reason, still sin, that they will fall to fleshly war within them. And there are indeed times that we are reminded here by the example of Peter, who was imploring as an apostle, but he's also imploring as an elder or presbyter. We read in chapter 5, for example, he says, I, who am a fellow elder or presbyter, exhort you, right? But also he exhorts them as a Christian, as a fellow Christian. We all have the ability uh, to beseech one another and to remind one another when the situation warrants it. Hey, watch out. Beware. Abstain from fleshly lusts and desires of sin. Peter explain, shows to us by his examples that when things are serious enough, we should not be afraid to warn or exhort one another, teach one another to flee the temptations of this world, the temptations around you in your life. When you are in a position to do that, stand firm like Peter, and maybe speak this way, I beseech you, please. Beseech, I don't think you actually say that today. It's going to sound really weird. <clears throat> Careful. When you go there, or please be, be aware of the temptation when you go here, when you're at home, or uh, when you're at school, or whatever the case is. Now, he speaks here, of course, beloved, I beg you, or I beseech you as sojourners and pilgrims. You ran across that language earlier in chapter 1. It talks about the dispersion, the dysphoria of the Christian church across the Mediterranean. That language here, he's highlighting this, that they not get too caught up into this world. Language that Peter uses in the midst and the context of persecution of the church, is to remind them that it is temporary. This world is temporary. That's what a soldier and a pilgrim is. They don't have a permanent place of dwelling. Now, sure, you live in a house. That's not what he's talking about. He means, one, in the ultimate sense, when Christ comes back, we'll have a new heaven and a new earth. There you have it. You're going to have a new home then. So even then, what we're living now is temporary. <laughs> temporary. You're going to live there the rest of your life, die and go to heaven, and have a new heaven and a new earth. You're going to have mansions of gold. Tells us, okay? But also, and especially here now, that we are sojourners and pilgrims morally, that we will stand out, that we're not supposed to go with the flow and walk the path that everyone else walks, but walk a different path, the sojourner's path, 
of morality and obeying and following Jesus. But it also is a reminder not to get too caught up in life, in our works, our home, and our politics, so that we are undone, as it were, and forget who God is and forget our salvation and just get wrapped up so much that we end up with sinful worry, obsession with the things of this world. Pilgrim idea, again, is about the temp- temporaneousness, that the temporalness. It's short and not long-lived. Years isn't really long compared to eternity. 80 years, not long compared to eternity. You're a pilgrim on this earth. You're 80. Perhaps by reason of God's grace, 90 years. That's it. We are pilgrims. We have to have that mindset, that way of thinking. Again, a moral category against the temptations of the world, that these things, the temptation from the devil, the temptation from our flesh to violate God's law, is a short-lived experience. As we know, it's not satisfying. At the end of the day, you feel guilt, and you ought to feel guilty. The consequences sometimes may last a while, if youthful indiscretions, as we speak of. But again, be a pilgrim is a metaphor with a specific focus here, I believe, in this text, of moral separation and holiness from the pagan environment in which they find themselves. And that's what he's talking about, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. What's the connection between being a pilgrim and having honorable conduct? Holiness. I mean, a pilgrim and a stranger from Israel, think of the Jews in the Old Testament, traveling and selling his stuff to Greece, he's going to stand out like a weirdo in Greece back then, in the Greece culture, the Greek culture. Roman culture, or going to Africa, right? His bowels of Africa. He's going to be a pilgrim, and he's going to stand out, and the Africans are going to say, you're a weirdo, what's your problem? Why don't you think the way we think, talk the way we talk, and have warfare, or whatever the differences are? So apply that here to this, in our situation as well. We are pilgrims in that sense. We stand out morally. We have all kinds of, and to carry on the illustration there of Africa at the time, all kinds of polygamy. By now the Jews, as we see in the New Testament, didn't have polygamy. It looks like there's no evidence of it. Well, they had in the Old Testament. What's your problem? Why don't you have multiple wives? Because I'm a Christian. You're a weirdo. Where are you from? I'm, you know, I'm from the Middle East. I'm from Israel. I'm a Jewish Christian at the time. Attacked by a fly. <clears throat> and you're going to be a soldier and pilgrim in that sense. So morally, that is what he's emphasizing here. And that is to say, negatively, to tell you what he's not saying. Peter's not saying in chapter 1 and in here, the rest of the book where he talks about being a pilgrim and being a sojourner, that the things of this world are completely and utterly irrelevant to you. You're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good, as the old saying goes. And people talk that way in Christian circles, in conservative Christian circles, and they ought to know better than that. I speak, of course, of leaders who ought to know better than that. The idea is not to withdraw from this world. I'm a pilgrim, honey. Sorry, I can't live with you. You're on your own. What? Living your spell? Well, the Bible says I'm a pilgrim and a stranger, a sojourner. That's not what he's talking about. Oh, I just throw up all my responsibilities. I don't have to be a, a good citizen. I don't have to be a good neighbor. I don't have to be a good worker anymore. Go off on my own. People use that approach. Uh, the, the most ready example I have in mind is politics. Oh, why, why are you guys so concerned about XYZ? Issue is a serious issue. I don't, we'll say abortion, murdering people. Well, you know, we are not of this earth. We're sojourners here. You shouldn't be so concerned. What? If they were murdering your family, you'd be really, I hope you're concerned. That's not what he's talking about. This is where we are. Things are so turned on their head in our culture and in our churches, unfortunately, that is in my experience, that I have to explain. That's not what he is saying here, right? You're not a pilgrim from your responsibilities to your family and to your church and to your neighborhood. You still have the Ten Commandments upon your life. And Peter, in the next two verses, tells you that. He says, therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance. 
But I'm a pilgrim, Peter. Why should I submit to every ordinance of man and the king of the law and the speed limits? Uh, because that's not what I mean by being a pilgrim. I mean by being a pilgrim is being holy, thus separated from this world of unholiness. That's the emphasis here. That's what the metaphor is highlighting. So we are called to take responsibility in a way the unbelievers will not take responsibility. To be morally upright in a way the unbeliever will not be morally upright. And it gets their hackles up and they start accusing you of being evildoers, although you've not been evildoers at all. That's what he's saying here. This is the context. Now, another way to look at this metaphor, which I don't think he's highlighting as much, but it's built into this language of being a pilgrim and a sojourner, is the loneliness of being a pilgrim and a sojourner, to be a stranger in a strange land. Taking the Lord's Day seriously, for example, makes you stand out at work. Like, what's your problem? A day like any other day. You know, it's, you know, like, are you from around here? Are you a stranger? It's, we've always done it this way. Of course, you know it's not been that way in America. We had Sabbath laws for generations. It's a new thing in rel- relative to our history. Avoiding cursing and misusing God's name will not win you friends. I lost friends. You've heard the story before in the military. Uh, he said, I don't trust you. Why? Because you don't curse. Okay. Yeah, I didn't say it, but like, I didn't, did I lose a friend? I don't think so. This <laughs> is what it's going to be. You're weird. You're a pilgrim. You're a stranger. Your neighbors will think you're strange. You read the Bible and you're not out playing partying on the Lord's Day, for example. You may even lose friends in the pilgrimage of your life. But thankfully, God has not left us alone. Absolutely. Many of us have our families and our churches. We're all alone together, as it were, in this world. We follow the Lord. One else goes the way of the crowds. And above all, we have our Lord and Savior. He is our guiding light as we walk this pilgrim earth. Now, as it continues on here, and again, showing us what he's talking about, sojourners and pilgrims, because you are sojourners and pilgrims, morally speaking, pure and up, upright, relatively speaking, but by God's grace, abstain from fleshly lusts. Don't sin. You're called to do good, but sometimes, of course, it's hard to do good. One of the best ways, starting ground, is to stop doing bad. <laughs> abstain is negative, right? Keep away from, don't do, stop doing, stop hanging around temptation, stop hanging around sinful lust or agitating sinful lust and riling them up and the like in our lives or around each other. We know it comes sometimes by surprisals, to use the language of the confession, surprising that comes upon us because we don't always know who we are, what our temptations are. We may think we're stronger than we are at times. Uh, But whatever it is, we are called to abstain, to restrain, and to even flee. Elsewhere in the Bible, we're told to flee the devil, flee sin and temptation, not hang around those problems in our lives. The word lust here, shorthand, I think, for the entirety of the sin process, from temptation itself to enticements to acquiescence to the sin in our hearts to the actual act in our hands and our members and our mouths and everything else. Whatever that entails, we are called to abstain from it, to stay away from it, from the lusts themselves, from fleshly lusts. So he's highlighting, of course, the word fleshly as a reminder is not the things of this body only. Fleshly is also often shorthand sin. So it's almost redundant here. It's a strong, emphatic, fleshly lusts, not just lust, but fleshly lusts, serious sins in our lives, lots of temptation, whatever that is, because we're supposed to use our body, Romans 6, supposed to use your members for good and righteousness. So the flesh itself isn't evil per se. It's what you do with it. Shorthand for that is flesh. Paul talks about killing the flesh or here fleshly lusts with war against the soul or your soul. And so we need to flee, fight, and to stay away from it and even to smother it, to kill it in its crib. The temptations, lusts in our hearts, the lusts and the sins of our mouth, dates, and whatever else we have in our lives. And there's a reason for this. Obviously because it's bad, 
God tells us to obey his law. That should be sufficient. But he gives a reason here. Which war against the soul? Sin, your lust and your desires. As simple as wanting to eat, you know, can turn into gluttony. Wanting to sleep, which can turn into laziness. Eating and sleeping are not wrong in themselves. In fact, they are good when done properly in good proportion to the rest of the things in your life. But they can turn into sin as well as what we could uh, traditionally think of as sin of desiring the wrong thing that's always wrong. War. I'm sorry. I, I'm a product of my time. Yeah, my wife's like, what is it good for, right? Silly song. Was it from the 70s? You know why it's silly, right? Because there is a good time for war. Stop those people from trying to kill you. Again, it's only rich, wealthy hippies from the 60s, and they've all grown up now in a prosperous society who can sing silly, stupid songs like that because they don't really know what real life is like, like they do in Africa, in the Middle East, and elsewhere. Life is brutal in a fallen world. There is a place for war, language of war in the church. We have it here in a Peter. It reminds us of the seriousness of the battle that we have and our callings and our vocations in life to resist and abstain from sin. Peter is reminding us, in other words, that our fleshly lusts want to kill you. They want to kill you and drag you to hell. The battle is that serious. The lust for fame, money, comfort, power, whatever it is, is but an enemy disguise who's at war with you. I guess like the KJB, CIA, he trying to undermine you. Whatever it takes to take you out, because it is a battle. It is a war. The church is called to be soldiers in this war. We are at war. When you are at war, you do not let your guard down. Stand firm and ready to stay away from the temptations of this world. And so you prepare your mind, way of thinking, comfortable speaking about war and killing sin. That's the language in the New Testament. It's called mortification, petition. You hear that? To place the dead, to kill. Kill your sinful desires. As Christ tells us and reminds us through hyperbole, the seriousness of, of it, if your right hand offends you, what did he say? Cut it off. If it's that bad, throw the TV out the window. That's the illustration that we would have today. Stop going to the movie theaters. Whatever it is that's a temptation towards your sin. It's a war, brothers and sisters, and we're called to take it that seriously. That could be daily, of course, to equip yourself, although he doesn't go into the details here. We know elsewhere in Ephesians, right? Put on the whole armor of God. One way to abstain from fleshly lusts is to put yourself on guard and to equip yourself. And so you have daily prayer and daily devotions and some Bible reading. Again, you don't have to do half an hour of Bible reading, but to do some Bible reading. Go through the Proverbs, go through the Psalms, find relevant verses to the issue at hand, issue you want to fight against. Weekly, we have that Sunday. God baked it in. God rested the seventh day because God was tired. No, of course not. Because he was teaching us, if I'm going to rest, all fortiori from the... In this case, the greater to the lesser of God's going to rest, how much more should you rest? That's why we believe there is still an abiding Lord's Day. That's changed. It's still the same ratio of one and seven. Gave it to us. The rhythm of creation. We would have a day to further equip ourselves so that we can go out this week, stand firm and encouraged by the gospel promises of the Spirit and the call here of holiness, of remembering that you are sojourners and pilgrims and not to follow the ways of the world. <clears throat> Second point, pilgrims honorable before unbelievers. Verse 12. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Pilgrims honorable before unbelievers. The honorable conduct, of course, is but another way of saying obeying God. You have cultures that speak of honor like Japan and the like. By honor, they may include the commandments at times because it is written on their hearts, but often includes a lot of other additional things that are contrary to the Word of God. 
they call it honorable, like honorable killings. Honorable suicide? What? That's not what he means here. This is another way of talking about following God and being upright in our conduct. Because we here we have a reason to resist our lusts. Not enough that it's a war against our soul, but he's saying, look, the Gentiles are watching. The Gentiles are watching. The unbelievers are watching and seeing what you Christians are up to. And this is especially true, it seems to me, at this stage in the early church, right? Because the early church, although had grown tremendously within the first 50 to 100 years, still a relatively new religion back then. And a lot of people hadn't heard of it still. The Roman Empire was huge. What are, who are these crazy people? We're not crazy. We're following God. We're honorable. We're upright. Follow his word. Now, uh, he says Gentiles, we would uh, say uh, pagans today. And by pagan, I just mean unbelieving polytheists back then. Uh, today, we would have atheists. We would have those who are spiritualists. We have a lot of Americans who uh, deny being atheists, but they're not Christian either. They're just whatever feels like a religion to them or spiritual vibes. <clears throat> they believe in something. So I guess that's a start. That's a connection we have with them. But it is, inter- it is interesting that Peter does not invoke God immediately here, does he? He says, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against you, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. When they speak evil against you, they've got nothing against you. It's a lie. That's the implication. He doesn't unpack it there. They're lying about you because they hate you. They've, they've all they got is lies. There's nothing true to it. Because you have been morally upright and holy in your conduct before the world say as a reminder that you can be morally upright and holy in your conduct before the world. And indeed are often. I haven't heard any police reports recently from (laughs) members of this church, so I think something's been going well here. He invokes the witness of the world that people are watching us, our actions, our words, our lack of actions, our lack of words at times as well. So he's not berating them, I think, as much as motivating them to pay attention, that they shouldn't let their guard down, that now that they've been taken out of darkness like their forefathers who were in paganism and darkness, as he describes earlier, they show to their neighbors, perhaps as little kids, pagans, change. Take God's law seriously, his word and his gospel. So we too should follow this encouragement and this example, not to let our guard down, because the world is watching us. Individually, in your family, our church, although not our church in the sense of who even knows we're even here, obviously. But I mean our denomination, the things that we do publicly to the extent that people find out about it, that is unbelievers, our actions, many other churches in America and their actions. So it's individual, it's corporate as well. They're slandering us. He's assuming that they're going to slander and lie about you. That when they, not if they, but that when they speak against you as evildoers, they, by your good works, that is, you're not evildoers. They're lying about you, right? It's called slander. And we've seen that. In our lifetime, lying about Christians happens often. Media, a lot of it, of course, is lying through omission, completely missing facts because they don't bother doing their homework. Because in their mind, all religions are the same. There's a bunch of nut job crack people. They don't see the distinctions that we see. Will all of unbelievers lie about us? Probably not. But does it matter? <laughs> all it takes is one person of influence who sees us in our guard down and being lackadaisical, and they will splatter it all over the news. And they have. We're already called hateful, we're already called bigoted, we're even called dangerous. That, uh, a few weeks ago, or last week, it was quite something to see that in the news, that our own government's saying, got to watch out for people who have religious holidays, celebrate 9-11. What? They kill babies, <laughs> but our sins are supposedly worse. What's that? They kill babies, but your made-up sins, because you're hate- hateful and bigoted or whatever else they make up, are worse. 
Jesus. This is what they do. This is the same exact thing he's talking about here. That happened to the early church. As you remember, they accused them of cannibalism because they were ignorant about the Lord's Supper. Their own servants turned on them and lied about them in the early church. We heard about that in Sunday school class. Peter knew this would happen. He should not be surprised, and they were not surprised. Prepared. The best way, of course, is to flee temptation. Abstain from fleshly lusts. And give no occasion to our enemies to malign us more than they ordinarily would malign us anyway. And it's therefore doubly important by application for pastors to be upright publicly. And they should not identify themselves with some sin as has been done in some churches related to our denomination. I am a blank put a sin in front there. <laughs> that they may, by your good works, not malign you as an evildoer. Why would you they must mean yourself as a sin, an adjective before yourself as a pastor of all things? What? She stepped down. Good works, in other words, is a defense. Public good works, as I said before, it implies that it can be done and has been done, I would argue. And it is being done by us, praise be to God, not to give up. Don't be discouraged that you are standing firm and people still lie about you and lie about your church and your friends and your brothers and sisters across America and across the world, for that matter, as they pass on lies about the church and what we believe, don't believe. They may glorify God, day of visitation. He this comment here at the end. Is it not strange, your ears, that they may, by your good works, which they observe, you go to church, you don't curse, you take care of your family, you're a good worker, glorify God in the day of visitation. What's the day of visitation? Christ returns. <laughs> what other day is it? In that day, the day of judgment, where Christ returns the second time. Although, if they have not repented, they'll still glorify God. Good works they've seen, they can't, they can't get away from it. They'll see that God is just. They can't help but every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the question is, will they do it willingly or unwillingly? Praise be to God, we do it now willingly. They will do it unwillingly, and they will do it unwillingly and glorify God in the day of visitation that these people, we maligned and lied about. It's kind of a harsh thing if you think about it. Now, prayerfully, they will repent and glorify God now rather than later. But they will glorify God about your good works, brothers and sisters taking care of your children, taking care of your family, taking care of your church. Don't give up. Don't be discouraged, but stand firm because we are pilgrims and strangers in this world, and our good works do bring shame upon them, and they hate it, not stop you. So let us resist sin, brothers and sisters, because we know that our sins are at war, wanting to kill us, and that unbelievers are watching us. Let us be encouraged not to give up, but do more by God's grace. Let's pray. We thank you, God above, for these encouraging words. Uh, Reminders and even warnings that we are sojourners and that we should abstain from flesh and lust that war against us. And we should have honorable conduct, God, uh, among the world to continue such honorable conduct. To know that we can continue that, Lord. And not to be discouraged when they lie about us and claim that we are evildoers when we are nothing of the kind. Help us, we pray, Lord. And we ask, God, that we continue to have such good works that day of your visitation, they will glorify you. In your name alone we pray. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all.